Welcome to Hell Week. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast and welcome to Hell Week. This is our new series that JP and I put together for rising interns and actually for anybody who's interested in our training programs. This is a consolidated series to try to get you ready, all the things you need to know in order to be a training neurosurgeon. Hi everybody, JP here. The usual disclaimers. The information in this podcast does not constitute medical advice. The opinions expressed are our own and don't reflect those of any institution or professional organization. But perhaps most importantly, we're going to loosen up a little for this series. So expect some constructive advice, some controversial stories, but most importantly, get ready to learn. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. This is another edition in our special on Hell Week Training Beyond Neuro Bootcamp. So this is an idea that I, I had for this episode. I wanted to focus on what I would call the importance of honesty. And I think in neurosurgery, more than almost any other medical field, honesty is really, really critical to success. And what I mean by that is not the little white lies we tell our wives or whatnot. But if I think about all the dozens of people I've seen who are fired or failed uh, in training, I think the majority, if not the vast majority, uh, involves some element of dishonesty. And, and I think that um, there's a good reason for that, right, JP? So you're getting into this now. Can you, can you share with us how you feel about this concept of honesty as a resident? Well, you know, we talked about this a little bit in our season one finale with uh, Dr. Giannata at USC when we were talking about Dr. Death. And we briefly got into the idea of the power of the spoken word. And I think, as you say, particularly within neurosurgery, the words that we speak to each other um, up and down the chain of command in relaying information and the words that we speak to our patients hold a particular power. Uh, you could even say magic, magic words. Um, I often reflect on the fact that if I'm on call, uh, especially in a trauma setting, and I'm called downstairs to see a patient who has a small amount of bleeding, this may be the only time in their life they interact with a neurosurgeon. They see me for 10 to 15 minutes at bedside. I walk in and I say, you had a fall. We got a scan of your head. There's some bleeding. Don't worry. You're going to be perfectly fine. You don't need any surgery, right? And from that patient's perspective, that's their entire interaction with the specialty of neurosurgery. I've walked in, I've pronounced their outcome, and then I go away and they never see us again. There's real power in that interaction and there's power in those words. Um, Then when I go back and I talk to my superiors and I say, this patient is neurointact. Uh, their exam's perfectly fine, very reassuring. That dictates largely what's going to happen to that person in the hospital. Um, and so, you know, as I was told when I started residency, the most important thing is that when you say A, A is A, right? So there, there has to be deep, deep trust between us all when we, when we talk about patients. Yeah, we, we touched on this in that in the, the, the uh, episode about doing your first consult, but I'll share with the listeners a little story. And this is a true story. 
when I was at the LA County General Hospital at USC as a resident. And there, the second year resident has a very close relationship with the seventh, who's the chief. So the two and the seven run their service together. But of course, you can't take call every night, right, for your service. So what happens is that the other residents, the third years, the fourth years, the fifth years, are in the mix. They're coming in to take call. We were taking call every fourth night. So it was 115 hours a week of work. But you couldn't be there all the time. And I'll never forget this one time. I was a second year. And uh, there was there'd be a sign out, right? So we would be in the ICU at seven in the morning and we'd be going over the consoles that came in overnight. And one of the guys I, who remained unnamed was a couple years ahead of me and uh, showed some images. You know, they, back then you didn't use a tax board and there was a there was a lady who was pregnant with hydrocephalus, right? And so the um, the idea was that, you know, he was explaining the consult to the chief and to me because I would have to follow up on this the next day. He said, don't worry, it's all taken care of. I put a ventriculostomy in. We're like, okay, good, excellent. As he's saying this, true story, the phone in the ICU rings. This is before cell phones were really popular. And it is a call from the Women and Children's Hospital, which is a separate building not attached to the LA County General Hospital, biggest hospital in the Western Hemisphere. And at one point, I think uh, 1% of all Americans were born in that one hospital. So anyways, wow. the call comes in, yeah, about this pregnant lady. And it's the ICU nurse down in the, in the women's hospital saying, Somebody needs to come down here and see this lady because she's dying. And so we run down to the other hospital. It's about a quarter mile. It's down a hill. And there's this pregnant lady, right? And she's got hydrocephalus and she's toning. She's herniated. And we, of course, go, is the ventriculostomy working? And the answer was, what ventriculostomy? And oh. I will never forget, as you said, JP, the words of the, the words have power. The, another resident said he had done something, and maybe he was planning to do it. You know, I'm not, I don't want to throw him under the bus, but it hadn't been done, and it happened right there in front of him. You can imagine, at least it happened in front of us. What if he just went to sleep not knowing, you know, what was going to happen? And, and that happened again and again, stuff like that every every month with different people. And so I think honesty is really really critical in our field. What happened to that resident? It's a long, long, we'll, we'll have drinks and talk about all this stuff more, but, but you know, this, right, this pattern repeats itself. I think I was asking you about someone just, just a couple of weeks ago, I called you and asked you, Hey, what about this person? And this person may have been looking for a job with us or something like that. And you gave me some Intel about honesty. And that was the first thing that you told me, right? That you felt like, well, look, if you can't trust this guy to tell you the truth, I mean, what, what can you trust them to do? Right. Right. And there, there's such a range of these behaviors, as you touched on from those little white lies. But uh, talking about whether or not you've done a procedure, that's that's a whole different uh, ball game, I'd say. But yeah, I mean, exactly as you said, um, can you imagine if the Women's and Children's Hospital hadn't just called you and you were working through that night and, and you know, as, as you came on to take the service alone overnight in the hospital in the back of your mind and, and on your list, your suspicion and your, uh, you know, level of concern for that patient was, I, I would imagine, very low. She's got a drain in, she's been seen, she's been assessed and, and had an intervention already. Um, and then you get the call, like, you know, what ventriculostomy? I, I can't imagine being in that scenario. Well, I think, you know, if, if I just, I'm just thinking through it right now, why because maybe I haven't thought about this enough. Why is it such a big deal in our field in neurosurgery? And I'm going to come up with, and maybe you can add to this, three different ways it really matters. Okay, and I'll, I'll tell you what they are, and then maybe we can go in and 
yeah, I'm just thinking through it right now aloud. Number one is ego. Number two, meaning our ego. Number two mm. is is a variability, and number three is sort of the obvious one, which is the the um, the, the severity of the diseases we're treating, the, the impactfulness of what we do and don't do. So so let's start with ego. I think that a lot of the folks that are saying things that are not 100% honest in clinical care, in clinical care, I think that some of it comes from uh, a, a a fear or denial of being able to admit that they hadn't gotten around to something. Absolutely. Like we used to brag about how many consults came in overnight, who got the most, I got 18, you got 15. Like, and and so there's kind of like a red, like a red badge of courage. It's like, well, you know, I can do it. And you, you don't really want to say, and I'm not trying to be touchy feely about this at all. Right. But like, you don't want to say, well, I'm sorry. I couldn't get around to it. I just, I mean, I fell asleep and I, I didn't get to that. I've never heard anybody say that. Yeah, I mean, and and not just uh, I didn't get around to something, but if you made a mistake, um, so many people, you know, type A, hyper competent, high achieving people who have been the top of their class all their lives, um, you know, as we've talked about before, they they enter this field now where it's the hardest thing they've ever done, and they're inevitably going to make mistakes because there's too much to learn too fast with a thousand things happening at once, um, and they have a fragile ego and they can't face up to the fact that they've made a mistake and they don't want to face it. Or maybe they fear the retribution or scolding from their superiors. And so they try to cover these things again with either little or sadly big white lies. Yeah. You know, I was in the OR this week and, and I was operating with one of our fantastic residents and this resident has a habit of, and I'm not going to name any names because there's I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. I'll say something. And the answer automatically is I know. Yes, I know. Like meaning, I, yes, I'm aware of this, and you know, I'm gonna take this in check. But I'm I'm actually waiting for this person to say to me, I'm I'm sorry, I I don't get that. Like, can you can you go over that again? Because that doesn't make sense to me, right? And people don't want to do that, right? They don't want to say that. Yeah, I think that actually, obviously, within neurosurgery, there are specific um, instantiations of of this um, tendency. But I think within medicine. Uh, at least when I was in medical school and, and the people I interacted with, there's this huge personality tick where no one ever wants to admit that they don't know something, which I've never understood. Maybe it's because my background is somewhat different than other medical students. So I've always been very comfortable saying, oh, I didn't know that, or I don't know, please teach me, or I'll, I'll look it up and you know, tr- try to learn those things. But I think, a- again, entering neurosurgery for the new rising interns that this uh, series is for, everyone knows that you aren't going to know a lot. Everyone expects you not to know things. Uh, We will expect you to learn and remember what you're taught. We will expect you to go home and look things up. We'll expect you to be prepared um, for the things you, you can be expected to prepare for. Like if you know you're going into a case, for example, you should read up on it, but don't be afraid to tell people if you don't know something um, that's normal. That's why it's a seven-year program. That's why you're coming in to be taught and to learn. And if you don't know something and you keep it to yourself, all you're doing is removing everyone's ability to teach you and make you more safe, more effective, a better person, a better doctor, a better surgeon. But but there is a way to say it, right? Because we do kind oh, of believe yeah. that there are stupid questions, right? <laughs> there, there's a way to do it. Yeah. Oh, of course. 
Um, so the second area, I think, is the variability. And this, I think, is maybe one of the core aspects. You know, there's this concept in neuroscience about how the brain fills in the blank areas. And, and we know this well, right? I mean, you were a psychology major at UF, right? I was at FSU, Florida State. Go I'm sorry, FS, sorry, I apologize. You're <laughs> seminal. But um, so, so what's the name for that, where you just fill in these blanks in your head, whether it's visual or whatnot? Yeah, um, I don't remember the name for the phenomenon itself, but there's, uh, there's blind spots. As, as you say, a lot of this um, model comes out of visual systems where sensory neuroscientists have demonstrated uh, with quite strong evidence that we simply physically cannot see as much of the visual field that, as we perceive. And so it's been pretty well demonstrated in animal and human models that most of the visual field that you perceive is a reconstruction by the brain um, filling in gaps with what you saw a moment ago off to your left. It just assumes that it hasn't changed. And yeah, so on so a moment to moment basis, you're right, especially in the periphery, the brain just fills in what should be there. Right. And, and I think like I do with my wife a lot, she's saying stuff to me and I fill in blanks and she goes, oh, you didn't hear a word I said. And she's, yep. she said it to me this morning and she was right. I didn't hear a word she said. I filled it all in my head. But I think because of the nature of the pathology we treat and how we do it, every single patient is unique. And I don't mean that as some trite, like everybody's special. Every single surgery. And I, I was in the OR not too long ago with one of our bariatric surgeries. Bariatric surgery is not straightforward and it is very dangerous uh, if done improperly. But the way he was teaching his fellows, okay, so you do this and then this happens, you do this and this happens, like taking a gallbladder out. And it seemed extremely rote. It seemed like, okay, well, there's really, you know, if you just follow the recipe book, maybe, and you do it carefully, you're probably going to be okay. And then I go back to my OR. And I'm like, okay, let's just do this micro disc. And boom, it's like, oh, well, conjoined nerve root. Damn, like we almost just cut right through a nerve root. And it's like every case you do is absolutely, it's not like Gray's Anatomy, right? Every right. case is different. And so I'm thinking to myself, if you're on some kind of autopilot, wow, you're, you're setting yourself up for all kinds of disasters. Um, and I think because of that, there is this inherent kind of a brain filling of, oh yeah, box check, done. And it's not, it's really not in, in our field. Um, and I'm trying to communicate this. I'm probably doing a very poor job of it. Why that matters so much that every page, I mean, you've seen enough consults now, right, JP? It's like, do any two consults even remotely resemble each other? No. And I mean, of, of course, things fall into patterns. But I, I think, I think that this is of particular importance with a neurosurgery because it's the nervous system that we're dealing with. And unlike other organ systems, we simply don't understand the nervous system as deeply as we do a gallbladder, per se, or uh, a heart or a lung. And so the organ system that we're working on and responsible for treating is, A, the most complex um, object in the known universe, the number of interconnections within the human brain, and B, because we don't fully understand its normal function, the way that we treat its abnormal function is necessarily limited. Um, and so whereas our patients obviously fall into these patterns and we can you know, group them in general disease classes, and, and by and large, a lot of what happens to each of them is the same each time. It's that fine level of detail because of the complexity and sensitivity of the nervous system and that murky edge of things where we reach the bounds of our human knowledge that makes each patient and each case more unique than perhaps um, in other fields. 
And so again, that, that murky edge where the fine details become paramount, uh, it's crucial to be e- extremely honest, not just about the information at that level of detail, but whether or not you asked those questions and whether or not you got good, trustworthy answers uh, during your interview. Yeah, and I think I think that maybe that's what you're what what it is, and what we're both saying is that there's this pattern filling. We want yeah. to fill a pattern, and it isn't a pattern. And I'll take it even further because I know some of the listeners out there aren't neurosurgeons yet, and that we get it that the brain's super complex, but the spine is is in some ways almost more complex. And I'll I'll give you the simplest thing. Like people are like, I, I mean, I, I have to be careful what I say, but you know, you hear about people who like amputate the wrong leg, right? And it's like, yeah. wow, you know, how did that happen? And I think to myself, wow, like the spine doesn't even have a set number of vertebrae. So people are like, well, what about the wrong level surgery? You know, well, guess what? The radiologist can call L5 one thing and you can call L5 another. And it's a, it's the same vertebra. And it's yeah. like, you know, you can have six vertebra or four vertebra. You can have extra ribs, few ribs. And if you don't watch that carefully, you are completely lost. And, and that's just the most, rudimentary, um, you know, ordinal designation of the spine by number one number, right, on a vertebra. Forget about the fine details. Yeah. And also, I mean, during spine surgery, um, you can be as detail oriented or as vague as you want uh, with your approaches. You know, you ask two spine surgeons uh, to name the muscles of the back during an exposure in the lumbar spine. And one surgeon might start naming each individual muscle and another surgeon might say, oh, it's a tissue layer that that I get out of my way. Um, I remember being in your operating room during medical school and you used to, uh, you know, rail your residents about how the blood supply to the spine and and the arteries as you dissect, you would always say, you know, all these arteries have names. You know, you, you always talked about some German anatomy textbook that you had that named all of these arteries in the musculature surrounding the spine, whereas most people, as they're approaching, just get it out of the way. If it bleeds, buzz it, get down to the level. So there, there's an appreciable level of complexity if you choose to address it as such. Yeah, I always like to say, if I come in and you say that it's an oozy patient, I'm like, no, it's not oozy. You just didn't, you didn't properly cauterize those vessels. Like, I, right. you know, I get it that you're concerned about the bleeding. But um, yeah, so and, and then the third part, I think, is, is really where the, the little mistakes amplify. And I, you know, I, I watched the first episode of um, Grey's Anatomy. I remember I was, what was I in medical school then? And I hated it. And there was this whole thing about like, um, you know, Ellen Pompeo or something like her, and she's got a, a hole in her glove and someone hands her a heart for a transplant. She's touching the glove and her gloves, you know, her, her beautiful manicured fingernails poking through onto the heart. <laughs> and then there, someone lost a line, a central line, the guide wire. I was like, these guys are a bunch of buffoons. These guys are clowns, right? I mean, they're good looking, but um, there's this thing about amplifying complications, right? I mean, have you ever seen that before? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, I, I always say um, the tiny deviations in angle at the beginning of a course can have huge impacts on where you end up, right? It's a butterfly effect, right? Yeah. So it feels so. So I think sometimes the perpetrator, if I can call it the person that, uh, thinks that they're going to say something that has very little impact. But the reality is the downstream clinical effect of that is massive. And and maybe I mean uh, maybe I'm not saying this right that that you you think you're saying something and it doesn't matter, but the reality is it is going to matter in in some cases right. 
Oh, of course. Um, I, I think that there's two ways that this manifests most importantly within neurosurgery. One of them is, again, talking to patients and the ideas that you plant in their head, which I, I think a fuller discussion of that, you know, we'll have in a subsequent episode about the, the psychology of talking to patients when you have to do things like a physical exam and, and try to assess numbness, weakness, some things that would be subjective or talk about pain with them. I think we can have a fuller discussion about that later. But certainly when you when you talk to your team members or Again, talking to these new interns, in my experience, when, when I talk to one of my senior residents or I staff something with a chief, especially if you're on call overnight, um, the words that you say to them, the words that you choose are going to impact their level of concern for the patient you're describing. And if they're at home and you're the one in the hospital, that's going to impact whether or not they choose to come in. And so you have to choose your words carefully and you have to do your best um, to accurately and effectively communicate exactly the situation with this patient that you're trying to and um, really give them a thorough picture. Because if you undersell something and then the senior resident doesn't see that patient until the morning and that it's a surgical case, that person's just lost hours uh, when they could have had treatment sooner. And again, not just the severity of neurosurgical disease, but the acuity and the unforgiving nature of neural tissue, um, not just the you know time is brain and all of that, but if someone is developing a deficit and they sit overnight, who knows what percentage of recovery you just lost them, even if they still survive and even if they get the appropriate treatment in the morning. Yeah. And to that end, the, the, what you're talking about with discussions with patients, uh, I would direct our listeners to Fred Barker uh, from the Mass General, his mm. episode that we recorded about uh, delivering bad news. And we're going to have an episode a little later on in this series on delivering bad news to families. Right. So. So, JP. So, I mean, I, you know, if I can give some take home advice. Yeah. You know, you can lie about your height. You can lie about your age. You can even lie about your MCAT score. When it comes to these <laughs> these issues of, uh, of dealing with patients, please. Uh, it's always better to take the hit up front of whatever bad thing it is that, that you think is going to happen and, and not undersell the problems because of the nature of this. So, so again, thank you for listening, guys. Uh, good luck on your start in neurosurgery if that's where you're going. And uh, feel free to email us. Yep. Remember, there are only three things it takes to be a good surgery resident. Basic manual ability, the capacity to learn, and you must never, never lie.